Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on what is now day 106 of the coronavirus crisis. The big question tonight, are we moving closer to reopening the economy? Stocks are selling off to start this uh, post-Easter week. The rally hits a roadblock. It was a rough day for banks, builders, airlines. Stocks take a hit. We're looking at a date. It is a delicate balance. I think it could probably start at least in some ways Maybe next month. This is a new debate begins about when it will be time to go back to work. The CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, starts right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome on this Monday. Good to have you with us. Here is where futures stand right now after a bit of a comeback towards the close on Wall Street. Futures are positive across the board. S&P, Dow, NASDAQ would all open in the green. This comes after the Dow did suffer a 328-point drop. That's about 1.4%. The S&P was down 1%. NASDAQ finished the day up by about a half a percent. Tesla, Netflix, Amazon, and Biomarin all had a big day today. And today, New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo saying the worst could be over for his state. Quote, if we continue to be smart. Now the governor is working with several other governors on a plan to reopen their states. Contessa Brewer has more. Contessa? So, Scott, these six governors insist that they have a better shot at success working this problem together. If they jump back in too early, if they do it independently, there could be grave unintended consequences in the words of New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. And think about it here. If New Jersey decides to open bars and restaurants and New York doesn't, Will you just have a mad dash of potentially infected customers going across the river that separates those two states? These governors preside over roughly 47 million people along the I-95 corridor. Many live in one state and then work in another. So a coordinated plan amid this outbreak that really doesn't stop at state lines makes sense. Already, though, a power struggle is erupting. These governors are cobbling together a coalition that is working on reopening. And yet the president tweeted today, it's not their decision. It's the decision of the president. The governors pointed out that this president didn't take responsibility for shutting down the states. Tell me what are the roles? What's my responsibility? What's the federal responsibility. You want to shift the responsibilities in the relationship? Fine. I'm open to that. Explain to me what I do, what they do. Who does purchasing? Who pays? Who does testing? That testing is a real sticking point here because they can't ensure safety of employees, of school children, of families, and without widespread capacity. And Cuomo says he simply doesn't have it and money is running out. The National Association of Governors is petitioning for $500 billion in this next relief bill. The announcement from the six states today is that they're going to have this working group and each state will supply the governor's chief of staff, a head of public safety and an economic official to go ahead and put through this working plan. In Connecticut, the economic official will be former Pepsi CEO Indra Nui. 
They're going to work on these database protocols. They're going to look and see what other countries have done and what has worked. They're trying really to coordinate this effort. You have to look at mass transportation. You have to look at when the schools open because you can't get people back to work if they still have little kids sitting at home. Uh, and, and of course, the transit is important. When can you accommodate safely all these people getting back to work? They would not touch a question of which industries might be considered so important they would be the first to return, Scott. Lots to figure out. Contessa, thank you. That's Contessa Brewer for us tonight reporting. The White House holding its nightly coronavirus task force news conference discussing the growth of the virus, the government's response, and when the economy might reopen. The more as we go by each day, I think we're going to see, and again, I never like to get ahead of myself or of Dr. Burks, but it looks like even though we've had a really bad week last week, remember when I was speaking to you before, I was saying this was really a bad week. Uh, there's still going to be a lot of deaths, but we're starting to see in some areas now that kind of flattening, particularly in a place that was a hot spot like New York. So I can just tell you the first and only time that I went in and said we should do mitigation strongly. The response was, yes, we'll do it. There wasn't anybody saying, no, you shouldn't do that. Are you doing this voluntarily? or did No, the I'm doing it. I, Everything I do is voluntarily, please. I've been having many discussions with my team and top experts, and we're very close to completing a plan to open our country, hopefully even ahead of schedule. And that's so important. We will soon finalize new and very important guidelines to give governors the information they need to start safely opening their states. My administration's plan and corresponding guidelines will give the American people the confidence they need to begin returning to normal life. That's the president. Let's turn now to Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He is the former FDA commissioner. Doctor, it's good to have you with us now. You heard the president there talking about reopening, perhaps in his words, ahead of schedule. How should this work? Well, we outlined in a plan that I uh, published with a group of people um, a couple of weeks ago what, the, what we thought the right criteria would be for reopening the country. And we talked about a sustained reduction in new cases and then waiting a full replication cycle, so 14 days, which is the incubation period, uh, the maximum incubation period for the virus itself. Wait 14 days after you see a sustained reduction in new cases. If you were working off that criteria, and I think it's a reasonable criteria, that would put you at some point in May because you're going to see a sustained reduction in new cases really over the next two weeks um, nationally and probably in New York as well as parts of the south, uh, southeast where there's been later spread. And so if you wait another week or two after that, that puts you in mid-May. So I think in May, regardless, we're going to be contemplating reopening parts of the economy. I think it's going to be gradual. I think we're going to do it in a staggered fashion to make sure that we can do it safely and that we don't have an explosion or re reignition in cases. But I think regardless, there's going to be a lot of pressure from the business community on governors and on the national government to reopen the economy. And I think in May we're going to get that underway. Who should make the decision on that, Dr. Gottlieb? The president says it is his authority. Meantime, you have governors along the northeastern corridor, also on the West Coast, saying they're the ones who are going to make the decision. What makes the most sense to you? Well, I think that what's likely to happen is that the federal government and the White House is going to put out some general recommendations for the governors, but ultimately these decisions and how they get implemented are going to be made by local officials and by the governors. That's the way that this has been 
um, being managed up until this point. Uh, and I think that that's likely to continue. And I think what the governors are going to do is they're going to take a phased approach. They're going to say, well, certain businesses can reopen, but you can only reopen with maybe 75% of your employees at any one time. So maybe you have to run more shifts. Maybe people who are older or more vulnerable should stay home for an extra week while we restart this and get people back into the workplace. Um, you shouldn't have gatherings of, let's say, more than 10 people, or you shouldn't have conferences. So they'll put out guidelines on some recommendations. So you do this in a staggered fashion over the course of the month, and then they'll have some objective measurements along the way to make sure that we're not seeing a reignition in cases. They'll, they'll be monitoring very closely to see if the case counts continue to go down or if they start ticking up again. Probably the most important thing, though, that we can do right now is continue to be um, vigilant about good hand hygiene, um, avoiding contacts that are unnecessary. Even as we go back to work in May, I think people, if people continue to, de- to engage in good practices when it comes to just the ordinary routines of daily life and cleaning shared surfaces, things like that, that could mitigate a lot of the risks. So I'm hopeful that the American people, having come out of this experience and seen how devastating this virus is, are going to continue to be vigilant about their everyday activities. And that in and of itself can have a big impact on the transmissibility of this infection. How do you reopen a city, Dr. Gottlieb, like a New York City or Los Angeles, for example, when compared to what you may consider a second tier city in terms of size and population? Well, it's clearly going to be more difficult in the larger cities and also more risky. And I think you're likely to see cities like New York, even if the decline is more rapid in New York and you see um, transmission break up off more um, in a more robust way in New York City, they might make a decision to restart the city, the economic life of the city or most aspects of it later than some other parts of the country that maybe aren't on the same part of their curve. They might actually be on a uh, be a little bit a week or two behind New York, but have less risk overall because they're less of a dense um, city or they had less cases overall. So I think this is going to be highly variable across the country. And the very big, dense cities that had a lot of spread, like New York, like Los Angeles, like Detroit, like Chicago, may be a little bit more cautious in terms of stepping into this than parts of the countries that had later spread. So they may be at, at a, a sort of earlier stage in their epidemic. But they're less dense. There's less risk there overall. Let's talk about what this might feel like, what it might look like on the other side of this. I have a Time magazine article here. They did an interview with you in which you say, quote, this could become a livable pathogen where it's there. It circulates. You're going to hear on the evening news about outbreaks in a dorm or a movie theater. But people go about their normal lives. Things change. But the changes will we make are, are livable. How should we accept how things are going to be once we try and get back to normal? This virus is going to be with us for an awfully long time. Is that what you're saying? I think until we get to a vaccine, this is going to be something that circulates. And even after we have a vaccine, this is going to continue to be something that probably circulates at a low level. And so we're going to have to learn how to mitigate the risk of this virus. Between now and the fall, um, it's going to be touch and go. You know, we're we're going to be at greater risk because we're not going to have all the tools that we want in terms of very broad testing and therapeutics that can effectively treat this. I'm hoping by the fall, we're going to have those things on hand. And the fall is when the risk is really going to increase. We're going to get out of this epidemic. Um, We're going to be heading into a period where cases are going to be declining. Hopefully the summer is somewhat of a backstop against this, this virus heading into July and August. But then there's a risk that it really reignites in the fall. When we get, we're coming back to work, when kids are back in school, 
when college campuses are back in session. Um, and there probably is going to be some seasonality to this virus as well. So it's going to want to come back in the fall and the winter. That's typically what we see with coronaviruses. So we're going to have to learn how to mitigate that risk on an ongoing basis until we can get to a vaccine. And the key is going to be very widespread testing and trying to find people with the infection and isolate them before they have a chance to spread it to other people. And many people get this infection, as you know, this virus, and they're asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, so they can be um, they can inadvertently spread it and not know it. Let's talk about therapeutics and a vaccine for a minute. It appears as though there was some good data today on the Gilead drug, remdesivir. How are you thinking about that, where we are in the race to have therapeutics? And I also read there were 70 vaccines now globally in development with three candidates already in human trials. Put all of that into perspective for us tonight. Well, I think the key right now, there's a lot of drugs in development. There's a lot of vaccines in development, to your point. I think the key right now is to try to focus on what the nearer-term opportunities are that could be most impactful. When you sort of narrow it down, you look at the vaccines that have the highest probability of success and could be scaled, their manufacturing can be scaled, and you look at the drugs that could have an impact on this disease. They look like they're active or they could be active and they could be available in time for the fall. That's a much more limited subset. And I would be focusing attention on those things, even from a regulatory standpoint at FDA, focusing resources, focusing development time on those opportunities, because we really need some therapeutics by the fall. And so the ones that become very interesting are remdesivir looks active. Um, I, I suspect it's going it's not going to be a home run. It's not a cure. But if used early in the course of the disease, it probably can have an impact on the disease and mitigate the risk from the disease for a good, good number of patients based on just very preliminary evidence. This is conjecture at this point. The other products that look like they could potentially be active against this based on what, how we understand they work are the antibodies. These are drugs that are basically engineered antibodies to target the virus. We made these successfully against Ebola. We had a drug that was successful against MERS in the clinic and in, in animal studies. And there's no reason we can't engineer through biotech processes antibodies that can target this virus. There's four companies working on this right now, Regeneron, Lilly, Veer Biotechnology, and Amgen. And I believe one or more of these could be successful. These are the kinds of things we could potentially have for the fall. So we really got to focus on how we pull these through so that we have a different cabinet chest. We have a different therapeutic armamentarium in time for the fall when this virus, there is a risk that this virus is going to come back and we're going to face the risk of outbreaks and potentially another epidemic. That toolbox we've talked about so often. Dr. Gottlieb, good to see you once again. We'll see you tomorrow night. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb joining us Thanks tonight. A lot. Let's now bring in Megan Shu. She's a CNBC contributor, head of investment strategy as well with the Wilmington Trust. Also with us tonight are Fast Money Traders. Tim Seymour, the CIO of Seymour Asset Management. Guy Adami, all of you recognize him, of course. Uh, Megan, I'll go to you first. All right, so we've started the week on a, on a down note. Now what? Where do we go from here? Well, we are cautious on the market. We're actually sellers of risk today. Um, I, I think we've seen some mixed sentiment from different analysts on Wall Street suggesting that maybe the bottom's in. Uh, maybe you should be buyers of dips. And I know you covered some of that uh, on the network today. I think all of that can at the same time that the market can be pricing in quite a bit of optimism. It can be overbought and expensive. Um, so as we see it, Based on our analysis, the market seems to be pricing in a V-shaped recovery, and we just don't think that that's realistic at this time, as much as I would love for it to be. Um, and based on where we see the market trading right now and the expectation that earnings or earnings estimates are going to be coming down 
further over the next few months, we see the market as pretty rich. And so we are modestly underweight equities. At the same time, I wouldn't get too bearish because of some of the positive developments that you covered re regarding therapeutics. That will do quite a bit to aid in the recovery uh, of the economy, hopefully in the second half of the year. Unless, Tim, the market is simply pricing in the overwhelming response that we've gotten from the government and from the Federal Reserve. Yeah. Well, we've, we, it has been that, Scott. And if you think about uh, how quickly in sequence this came, uh, in other words, in advance of really a recession, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's part of the recovery. I think, you know, Friday's Fed move in terms of really backstopping a lot of the fallen angels and the downgraded uh, high grade into junk is, is very important, certainly from a market sentiment perspective. But, but look, um, I, I have been one that has said, I don't think we have to necessarily retest um, the 2008-2009 analog, um, I don't think has to hold here. Having said that, this is going to be a process that you just talked about with Dr. Gottlieb is going to continue to play out. And, and the expectation that we go back to work um, is, is impossible. So earnings season is going to tell you a little bit uh, about the timeline to at least begin to assess normalized earnings. But that, you know, even even tomorrow and through the end of the week with the banks, you're, you're only going to get some insight into credit that's going to be the... the, the Pit of a nutshell, I guess. Yeah. I, I feel like this, this could be the most irrelevant earnings season maybe in the history of earnings. Guy Adami, I turn to you. Uh, Megan mentioned some of these price targets going up on Wall Street today. You had a plethora of notes, 3,000, a couple of targets there, and then one firm even saying 3,600 by year end because yeah. in part of what the Federal Reserve and the government have done and obviously what the virus numbers seem to look like now. So you, if you break it down, Scott, and it's great to be with you, I mean, I, I don't know how you can get to 3,600. I'll say this. When the S&P 500 made an all-time high seemingly just a few months ago, I think it was 3,393, you know, if you assume that S&P 500 earnings were going to be 160-ish, you know, you're talking about a market that was trading at 21 and a half times. That, to me, was expensive. The market's basically fallen 20%. You'd take 20% off the 160 you get $130 and you get the same multiple. I don't know how you can get to 130 So, yes, earnings probably don't matter, but I'm hard-pressed to come up with a, a, a realization or a scenario where we're back to any semblance of normalcy in the next six to nine months. I think the consumer, as much as the president and administration wants to say there's this pent-up demand, and maybe they're right, quite frankly, I think people have learned to live with more for the wrong reasons and I think, you know, people are going to be very apprehensive over the next year or so to do things that they've done historically. So to think that the market can just ratchet back to 3,600 magically, uh, I just don't see it happening, yeah. Scott. Tim Seymour, uh, Lee Cooperman told me today he doesn't see normalized earnings for two years. Two years. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, look, that, that's fair. Um, so talk about the banks, for example. Um, I, I think we're going to probably see, and if you look at the analysts on the street, it, it's somewhere by 2022, we get back to 2019. Um, so that's, that's the context in which you want to look at a lot of these companies. And, and again, in terms of earnings, the things that are most important, the things that I would be watching, um, have everything to do with accounts receivable, accounts payables, debt covenants. Um, where's debt to equity? Where have these companies drawn down on, on credit revolvers? These are things that I think you have to watch over the next couple of quarters. And this quarter, no question. And, and companies should be reeling in whatever liquidity they have. Um, but I, I, I absolutely 
All right, we're going to leave it there. That's Tim Seymour, of course, joining us there. A little halftime and fast money in primetime tonight with Megan Chu and Guy Adami as well. Here's what else is coming up tonight on this CNBC special report. See what life is like in Wuhan. Next, we'll talk live to one of the only Americans in the city. This one happens to run a large manufacturing plant. His story and the lessons he's learned. Coming up. Plus, the other side. What our society and workforce will look like after the crisis has passed. Before the break, images from around the USA on the 106th day of the coronavirus crisis. Good to have you back with us. Uh, now the latest headlines on the virus. Every U.S. state now has a death from the coronavirus, with Wyoming reporting its first tonight. More than 22,000 Americans have now died. The World Health Organization says it does not know if recovered patients are immune to getting the virus a second time. And the IRS says the first round of government stimulus money was deposited in the accounts of some Americans today. Well, the talk about a new normal is exactly what people in Wuhan, China, are experiencing right now. Mark Wetton is an American businessman who went to Wuhan to check on a manufacturing plant in early January. He got stuck there in the lockdown. He's still there, now witnessing the new normal for himself in Wuhan. He's with us tonight. Mark, it's good to have you with us. Tell us what the last few months have been like being stuck so far away from home. Well, first of all, good morning, Scott, and good evening there. Uh, it's been a, a quite a surreal experience go, uh, seeing Wuhan, which is a city of about 11 million people, going from 100 miles an hour, as I say, to zero. Just absolutely shut down the city from taxis to buses, subway. Everything was shut down. So now that it's reopened, give us a reality check, if you will, as we're starting to talk about that very subject this evening. What does a reopen look like and what does it feel like? Well, I've got to admit it has been very, very well controlled. What typically the government has done is required that you fill in an app uh, on WeChat that gives you a medical uh, background, that you've been in quarantine for 14 days, uh, you don't have any fever, and only when you have that can you leave your apartment complex or even catch a taxi or even get into your office. So there's a continual check. In my particular case, because I do not have a Chinese ID card, I don't have that. However, I have to have written permission and also have a temperature check when I leave the premises and in our office and factory, we're also doing a temperature check every morning and every evening. Interesting. What is your business and how many employees do you have there? Okay, we're, um, our business is dust collection, smoke collection, uh, typically anything to do with environmental 
cleaning of environmental uh, smoke and issues in factories. Uh, we have uh, 30 employees, around 30 employees on the floor, and we have 15 inside the office. Uh, from my engineering to QC, uh, we're in the process of growing the company, and we were having tremendous growth uh, right before this virus hit in. So we're not sure exactly what the end result's going to be once things really get back to normal. As just a few days ago in Wuhan, things are starting to open up. Other parts of the country have opened up even as early as February the 10th. But this being the epicenter has been definitely a little behind the curve. I'm wondering when you expect to get back to your home in Kentucky and what you expect to find when you do get there. Well, I'll be honest with you, I can't wait to get back. <laughs> I mean, I, the, the people here have been tremendous to me. They've brought me food. They've just been absolutely phenomenal. However, I'd like to get back and see the family. Um, unfortunately, I'm going to have to do another 14 days of quarantine in the trailer as I do not want to take the virus home if I do get on the plane, say, uh, that I would not infect anybody in my family. So we're setting up the trailer for me to live in for 14 days in quarantine. Tell us quickly about your family. Who's waiting for you in Kentucky? Okay, my wife, Beth, uh, which we've been married for many years. Uh, I have three children, the oldest one, Luke, Meryl, and Blake. Uh, my mom is living with us right now uh, during this time. And uh, so I'm just looking forward to seeing all of them. Na Luke is in law school in Nashville. Uh, Meryl, my daughter, is an audiologist. And then Blake, the youngest, is a missionary. Well, I'm sure they're as anxious to see you as you are them. We wish you well, and we look forward to welcoming you back to the United States as soon as you can get here. Mark Wetton, thank you so much. Good to talk to you. Scott, thank you very much indeed, and you have a blessed evening, sir. All right, you do the same, sir. Thank you very much. There is much more ahead on this CNBC special report. Next tonight, the other side. What happens when this is over? What does society look like? What about the American workforce? We'll begin exploring next. I think it could probably start at least in some ways, maybe next month. If Dr. Fauci is right, we are getting close to seeing what life looks like on the other side of the pandemic in this country. Tonight, we're exploring the social changes we will likely see, the potential changes to the economy, and the changes to the American workforce. Tonight, what life will be like on the other side. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. Welcome back. It's a question just about everyone is now asking, what will society look like when this ends? We start exploring that question tonight with a man who holds many titles. CNBC contributor Walter Isaacson is a professor of history at Tulane, and he is with us live tonight from beautiful New Orleans. Walter, thank you very much for being with us tonight. Thanks for having me, Scott. Good we to be with you. We discuss this question so often now. The president was talking about getting back to some semblance of normalcy tonight, perhaps uh, sooner than most people thought. What is normal <laughs> mean to you in this new environment? What should we expect? Well, one thing we're going to do is a little bit more social distancing. Secondly, we're going to have to redefine the nature of work, because I think that having health care, all the benefits, sick leave, paid leave, all those sort of things uh, connected to your employer 
that doesn't work very well in a society. We've had a society in which the divide between knowledge workers on the one hand, and by knowledge workers, it's also finance workers, that sort of thing. And on the other hand, people who work in factories, service jobs, the gig economy, that has grown wider over the past 10 or 15 years. Well, this thing was like a cleaver. It really divided it. Those of us, myself included, who can work from home, you know, we were in a totally different situation than the, you know, waiters or bus drivers, or for that matter, people who worked in factories or in stores. So I think we're going to have to make sure that we come out of this coronavirus without exacerbating this divide we've always had in society. So interesting. We, we almost have to rethink everything about what work is. The CEO of Cushman and Wakefield was on the network earlier today and talked about rethinking the, the workspace itself, the way that our workers use transportation in getting to work, they, the way they ride an elevator up to the floor in which they work on, the way they dine during the lunch hour and, and where they do that. This is a whole new experience Walter, that the American worker is going to have to think about here forward, not to mention the employer themselves. Absolutely. You're going to need a different type of workplace. But frankly, we can't go on like that forever. I mean, it's going to be a new century of biotechnology, I think, just like the past 50 years have been in information and digital technology transformation. And I think we're going to have to throw a lot of society's resources to figure out how do we have very targeted drugs, perhaps, you know, uh, new types of genetically engineered drugs that will take on viruses. Because in the end, we cannot survive wave after wave like this where we have to work from afar and uh, socially distance. Are we supposed to tell our children now, Walter, to forget about computer coding and start thinking about <laughs> DNA and, and genetic coding? I do think that the uh, students in the past 30 or 40 years, those of my generation, who learned digital coding, and now we're hammering that in, learn the digital coding, they're going to be surpassed by people who learn the code of life, the uh, DNA coding. And it's not going to be 01110 type coding. It's going to be ACTG, HCTG. So, yeah, I think the new wave of great jobs in the 21st century will be people who understand the code of life and people who go into biology rather than information technology. Although the combination of biology and information technology will be strong because it's by using computer techniques not only to sequence uh, viruses or DNA, but also run through all the things that we've had in terms of vaccines and treatments and to use uh, huge data sets and combine that with biotech, that's going to be the wave of the future. But if I have one thing I say to my students at Tulane, it's don't forget to take your biology courses. For sure, and maybe like it more than you ever have uh, in, in the past. Hey, biology is quite beautiful, and this coronavirus makes us not think so. But as we understand the fundamentals of biology, I think we should all try to embrace that we should understand the difference between a virus and a bacteria, between DNA and RNA. And we should educate ourselves as a society to understand biology better. The Levi's CEO was on earlier today and I thought said something interesting and, and maybe some would find it troubling, frankly. 
He used the words right-sizing an organization. I'm wondering how you think managers and CEOs and business owners are now going to be rethinking the needs that they truly have on the other side of all this and how that may have changed. I think the main thing they'll rethink is their space needs. I mean, when leases come up, people will say, wait, we've had a lot of our meetings by Zoom for two months. It's probably more efficient to have half the number of meetings or three quarters the number of meetings, but generally do a lot of our conferencing uh, through uh, Skype or Zoom. I think that we have to make ourselves a more productive society. Obviously, if downsizing some industries leads us to be more productive, that can create more jobs in the future. Interesting, Walter. I want you to listen to something that happened on my program at noon uh, last week. It was a conversation, uh, in fact, that I was having with the investor Chamath Palihapitiya. Uh, he's from the West Coast. This happened on the Halftime Report as we discussed who should be rescued by the government and who shouldn't. It's a clip, by the way, Walter, that was viewed 10 million times on Twitter since Thursday. Chamath clearly touched a nerve. And today, the investor Leon Cooperman responded in what's now become a debate over capitalism, if you will, in the age of of COVID-19. Let's listen and we can react on the other side of that. You keep saying propping up zombie companies. Are, are Are you arguing to let airlines, for example, fail? Yes. Why? I mean, how how does that make sense in the broader scheme of of the economy? Because it's not because when you look at what it means, this is why I'm saying like this is a lie that's been purported by Wall Street. When a company fails, it does not fire their employees. It goes through a packaged bankruptcy. Right. If anything, what happens is the people who have the pensions inside those companies, the employees of these companies end up owning more of the company. The people that get wiped out are the speculators that own the unsecured tranches of debt or the folks that own the equity. And by the way, those are the rules of the game. That's right, because these are the people that purport to be the most sophisticated investors in the world. They deserve to get wiped out. But the employees don't get wiped out. The pensions don't typically get wiped out. Why does anybody, I just don't understand, why does anybody deserve, using your word, to get wiped out from a a, a crisis created like, like this? How does anybody deserve to get wiped out? But just be clear, like, who are we talking about? We're talking about a hedge fund that serves a bunch of billionaire family offices. Who cares? Let them get wiped out. Who cares? They don't get the summer in the Hamptons. Who cares? It's a different form of subsidy. If the government refused to bail out some of these guys, there would be a much greater amount of unemployment, and the government would have to pay all sorts of safety net benefits to these unemployed. Okay. To the extent that they're helping these companies through a difficult period, they avoid the huge surge in unemployment, and they will get a return on their investment. The government made money on AIG. The government will make made money on Chrysler, I believe. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I believe they came out making money. Okay. So the government is the lender of last resort. That's a more preferred outcome than basically letting guys go bankrupt when something so totally unforeseen occurred. So, Walter, you heard Shamoff and, and Lee Cooperman there. And, and what we essentially have is a debate over what capitalism is right now. There are those who say this is how capitalism is supposed to work. The weak hands fail if faced with an external shock. 
The other side of it is where in capitalism does it say don't go to a movie theater, don't get on an airplane or go to a hotel or go to a casino or do anything social. And then the business that fails. Oh, well, that's just the way it is, because that's how capitalism says it's going to be. How should we think about capitalism today? Well, this is a one, one, you know, this is a huge disruptive thing that's not part of the normal course of events. So I think it's fine to say we'll let a few hedge fund billionaires go out of it. But that's not what we're talking about when everything from movie theaters to restaurants to hospitality to travel to, you know, almost any company has had this unforeseen event. It doesn't make sense to say it's great to just say this is only a few hedge fund billionaires who's going to get uh, hurt. And it's not just about going through Chapter 11 or some type of bankruptcy. These are places that will have to totally shut down. And when you have a shutdown of the economy, this is not a good thing. So I agree with Mr. Cooperman. You got to figure out smart ways to get people through this crisis. Now, let me just say something, because I do have a, a conflicting interest. I've been on a board of an airline, so I don't want to comment on any way on the airline issues. Understood. But you could substitute hotel for airline or casino or restaurant for airline. The greater point is who should be bailed out and who shouldn't. And the other point, let me let me make a point real quick here. The, The hedge fund people and the people with, you know, millions of dollars, they're not the ones suffering. I'm sitting here over on a balcony in New Orleans. I can see the people who are getting hurt. Those are the people in the gig economy, the people who had hourly wages, the people who, if you destroy small businesses across this country, they are going to get creamed. And it's not just a question of those businesses filing for bankruptcy. These businesses are not going to make it over the hump. We do not want an America like that. The big worry, of course, Walter, as we think about what the other side, so to speak, is, is going to be, we don't want to make the income inequality gap any greater than it already is and hurt the people who are already hurting even more and who are undoubtedly going to be hurt on the other side of this. We're talking about a stock market today, Walter, that just had an incredible week, largely because of what the Federal Reserve and the government have done in rescuing at the same time when you have jobless claims that are astronomically high and horrific. And we have to reconcile these somewhere on the other side, don't we? Yeah, we've had an economy that's generally been uh, less fair to the average worker, less fair to the people doing goods and service and manufacturing than it has been to the people in the knowledge industries and the financial industries. And we've watched that for 20 years. Now, we didn't have something this disruptive come along. But this disruptive thing has been particularly painful to to those people who actually physically have to go to a job in order to get their paycheck. So I think we have to have a new type of economy where we value real work. And uh, this is something when we come out, if you read Michael Sandel's 
brilliant piece in the New York Times today. It's about valuing the real nature of work. That's what we have to come out of this with. I did. Uh, I have it in front of me. Uh, I did it in reading, right. uh, reading up uh, in preparing for this. It is a good read. I urge everybody to check that out. Walter, as usual, thank you so much for your time and most importantly, your insights tonight. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Scott. That's Walter Isaacson joining us there. There is much more ahead on this CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. Next tonight, what the American workforce looks like on the other side. And what changes Americans will see when they go back. Plus, I even need to take action and do something or get ready to shut the doors. A great example of what happens when life hands your business lemons. How one individual business leader is stepping up. Before the break, images from around the world on the 106th day of this global pandemic. have you back with us. We're continuing the conversation now on what life looks like on the other side of this crisis. Joining us now is Johnny Taylor. He's president and CEO of Society of Human Resource Management. Johnny, it's good to have you with us. Thanks so much for your time tonight. You are the voice of all things work, workers and the workplace. So we're going to rely heavily on your expertise tonight to tell us what we should expect on the other side when we go to work. Man, I tell you, it's going to be quite different. As you know, we've faced this pandemic, something that none of us in our lifetimes and, frankly, grandparents hadn't seen. It's pretty amazing. And we're going to see a significant shift in mentality and approach of workers and worker and, and workplace in the future. So it's not only the physical workplace that, that will undoubtedly look differently. We won't be sitting as close to each other as we otherwise did in the past. But talk to me about how we should be thinking about emotionally and mentally, what it's going to be like to go back to work, the anxieties that are going to undoubtedly be there throughout the duration of this crisis. Well, Scott, that's the real issue is everyone is focused right now on the current issue. When will we peak? And but the reality is we're already already getting the research. We're surveying here at Sherm employees. We're going to have a big piece of research that'll be released next week, but it's telling us how differently people are going to see the world. First of all, we know specifically that a lot of people won't come back to work in the sense, in the traditional sense, back to the workplace. In the past, we always said remote work was something we did as an accommodation for employees. And what we're finding now is a lot of employees are actually afraid, will be afraid to come back They're They're like, yeah, I got over, got over it, but others, I can continue to get this disease. So we're going to see a significant increase of employees requesting work from home permanently. And do you think more, more workplaces will be more uh, amenable to that? I'm wondering whether whether yeah. the, the dynamic of the, the power shift of the of the relationship some sort uh, of in some sense is, is going to evolve where the, the worker has more power or at least more than they ever did in the past to say, I don't feel comfortable in this environment. How about this? 
Well, and in fact, they'll be able to do it because in times past, the manager's argument has been, I'm not so sure this job can be done remotely. Well, we're on day 106 on a lot of jobs that heretofore we assumed one could not do adequately remotely are now being done and done quite well. So we know that that's going to shift. It won't be as much about power as it is. In fact, there are a number of employers. I just saw a recent report where CFOs are saying, frankly, we are looking forward to having fewer people in the workplace because we're not paying $100, $125 a square foot in the middle of some major city for office space. If you can work at home, good for you. But the three floors uh, on on Park Avenue maybe become two. Johnny, we appreciate your time very much. It's good talking to you tonight. That's Johnny Taylor joining us this evening, a business owner fighting back against the virus. That's next. The owner of Shine Distillery in Portland, Oregon, is facing this crisis by fighting back. Tonight, how John Poteet is stepping up. My first reaction seeing this coming down the line early in March was, oh, my God, I'm going to go bankrupt. I either need to take action and do something or get ready to shut the doors. Prior to COVID-19, we were a 260-seat traditional American-style restaurant with a distillery. You'd come in, make reservations, have dinner with three or four friends, and hopefully buy a bottle on your way out the door. Since the COVID-19 thing has hit, we're no longer allowed to have customers inside the restaurant uh, because of the mandate. And now we have switched over to become a a hand sanitizer facility. Having the uh, distillery inside of our building allows us to manufacture the high-proof ethanol, uh, the, the base that is used in hand sanitizer. We have made about 4,000 bottles at this point in time. We hand out a free one to anybody who walks through the door. And we're also selling some of the larger quantities to organizations as needed. We've shared our recipe with over 300 other distilleries around the nation. The goal here is to make sure that other communities are being taken care of and kept healthy and happy so we can all get back to the normal post-COVID-19 as soon as possible. And that was Shine Distillery and Grill owner John Poteet stepping up tonight in Oregon for us. And for all of us here at CNBC, please stay safe. I'm Scott Wapner. I'll see you tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Shark Tank is next.